Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you... Being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, would you have asked? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. That I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship or neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So the reading of God's word, let us pray again together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us living water right now, that we would drink from your word, that your spirit, the very spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ would fill us, that we would understand what our Savior means, that you would give us the strength to apply it to our lives and to glorify and worship you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I really believe that we all know as humans that there is something wrong 
with the world in which we live. I think in our heart of hearts, we know that there is something just not right with this world. There is that thing we call natural evil. There are disasters and so forth. And then there is evil in the world. People kill other people. They murder and do all sorts of things. And of course, we see the evil in our own hearts as well. But in addition to that, we know that there is something more to this life. I mean, we get up every morning. We prepare for our day. We go about our callings, our work. We become tired and at times frustrated in that work. We go to bed and when we get older, we don't always sleep as well. We rise again the next day and hit repeat. And so we're forced to ask, is this it? Is this all there is to this life? And after that, of course, comes death. Well, as we think about that, there's nothing new under the sun. Thousands of years ago, uh, the preacher Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. He said this, speaking of God, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. And that is to say that God has put eternity in our hearts. We not only know that God is there, Psalm 19 and Romans 1 tell us, through God's creation. And that's because we are made in His image. We are made and created to receive that revelation from God. Also, we know in our hearts that there is something more to this life. More than we can experience on our own. And the rest of that verse goes like this. It says He's put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And that is to say there is nothing again on this finite earth that can satisfy the human heart. And that was the case for this woman of Samaria. You see, she had a Christ-shaped hole in her heart. And we know at least in one instance she tried to fill that hole with an illicit relationship that is with a man who is not her husband. And so along comes Jesus. Jesus, Matthew one twenty one says, who came to save his people from their sins. And he is here at this well, having gone through Samaria in order to bring salvation to this woman. But I want to ask a question this morning. Why? Last time we saw that only a restored soul is a satisfied soul. As Augustine put it, uh, over 1,500 years ago, in a prayer to the Lord, he said, Oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. What a great quote that is, because it is truth. And we saw that with this woman. She had been thirsting for something. In fact, day after day, she came to this well as an outcast because of her her illicit relationship with this man. She couldn't come to the well when the women of her town normally would come. She comes in the heat of the day when she is thirsty. 
And Jesus poses that proposition to her. If you knew who it was that is speaking to you, He would offer you living water. The waters of salvation. The Spirit of the living God. A restored relationship resulting in union and communion with the living God. And your soul's thirst will be satisfied. In fact, you will have in you this well bubbling up. This living water. But I'm asking the question this morning, is that the only reason God saves people? I'm asking you, why has God saved you? Why has He saved me? Again, He shall save His people from their sins. And so I hope to answer that question, saved, but why? This morning. So we continue this conversation. We come midstream into it. There, verse 16. And so you'll recall that Jesus gave this great statement of salvation in verses 13 and 14. And then you can see there in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She obviously misunderstands what Jesus is saying. And so let us see how Jesus continues this conversation. Remember, as we are looking at this and as we will go through the Gospel of John, We're going to see how Jesus, the master evangelist, evangelizes poor, lost sinners like you and like me. And so let's take our cue from our Lord as we move through these passages. So the first thing that he does in verses 16 through 18 is he convicts her of her sin. Jesus wants to arouse this woman's conscience to show her that she is thirsting. And he does it there in verse 16. Look at it. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Again, in the conversation, we'll find out she doesn't have a husband. Jesus knows this. Remember in John 2, 25, it says there that Jesus knew what was in man. Nobody has to inform Jesus what's going on in the mind and heart of men. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. He is God incarnate, God in flesh. He is God shrouded by a human body. And yet he tells this woman to go and get her husband. Why? Again, he is showing her that she is searching. That she has this insatiable desire that nothing on earth can fulfill. And so as we see what Jesus does here, as he points to her sin, you know, when we're sharing the gospel ourselves, that's something we all have to do at some point. You know, years ago, somebody talked about competing worldviews. There's the Christian and biblical worldview, and then there are all other worldviews. And at some point, there must be a head-on collision. We have to be direct. We have to confront the the sinner with his or her belief system. And in particular, with his or her sin. In fact, that's the preacher's job, right? In 2 Timothy 4, Paul tells young Timothy, the pastor there at Ephesus, he says to him, preach the word. And he says, be ready in season and out of season, verse 2. When it's in high demand, when it's in low demand and people don't want to hear it, be faithful, preach the word. He says, convince, rebuke. 
exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And so part of the preaching process is to rebuke when necessary, even Christians. And so if you experience preaching that never talks about sin, if you are never convicted by your sin, under the preached word, something is amiss, something is wrong. But that's not it, because Paul tells Timothy, with all long-suffering and teaching, that is with patience and with teaching, you teach people how to overcome their sin, you teach people the remedy for their sin, ultimately pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so that's the task of every preacher. It's our task as we proclaim the gospel in our daily lives. And so what is her response? Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. She spoke the truth, but not the whole truth, so help her God. She gave half the truth. This is human nature, right? We parse words. We want to present ourselves as fully put together, as perfect, when inside we're broken. Maybe hurting, struggling with sin, with doubt. But we project, is the word today, that we are just fine. And this woman says to Jesus, I have no husband But Jesus, as if he were peeling the layers of an onion, eventually gets to her heart. And does this patiently, as only he can do. So in verse 17, after he says, after she says, I have no husband, Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. Now in the Greek, there is a change in the word order. And it goes something like this. Jesus says, You have said, well, a husband you do not have. So he's putting the emphasis on the fact that she doesn't have a husband. You see what he's doing? He's taking one step at a time. So the word husband is at the forefront. What do you think is going on in her mind, in her heart? Conviction. And the Lord who is patient with her, praise be to God, is patient with you and me. Imagine if when we first come to Jesus Christ, if He lays out everything on the table that we've done wrong, I think we would become disheartened, discouraged, despondent. And so there's this thing called sanctification, which is a process in our lives. He deals with us daily, hour by hour, year by year, Showing us our need to walk in holiness. And so he says to her, you have said, well, a husband you do not have. In fact, he says in verse 17 or 18, for you have had five husbands. So it could be that maybe she is married five times and been widowed five times. We don't know. Or maybe she's been divorced five times. We don't know the circumstances. But here's the point. It says there at the end, he says, the one whom you now have is not your husband. The point is that Jesus knows every 
intimate detail of her life. I'm here to tell you, Jesus knows every intimate detail of your life. It's like the psalmist in Psalm 139. He talks about the knowledge of God, God's omniscience, that he's all knowing. And he says, oh, Lord, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I I can't bear it. And he says, you know, my rising up, you know, my lying down. Uh, Behold, before I speak a word, you know it all together. Before it's on my tongue, you know what I'm going to say. And it overwhelms the psalmist. And at the same time, for the child of God, it should give some comfort that God knows. He knows our hearts better than we do. The heart is desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Who can know it? And so Jesus is performing spiritual heart surgery on this woman. Then he later, he he of course then, as we read, he lowers the boom on her. He lets her know that she is shacking up. And in a day and age when it's expected for young people to shack up and to live as husband and wife together, let us remember that that is evil before God. That God considers that a form of adultery. That that's fornication. And though in the 90s, friends may present that as acceptable in New York or in the movies or in song today, it's expected. And maybe you move from, you know, um, relationship to relationship. God forbids that. And so Christ deals with this woman. And as we think about his omniscience, we need to understand we can't run from Christ. Men cannot run From Jesus Christ. And remember who he is today. He is the one who has risen from the dead. He is the one sitting at God's right hand. He is the one ruling over heaven and earth. And he is the judge to come. And in 2 Corinthians 5. I think verse 10. It says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And yet at the same time. Look at the way he deals with this woman. With patience. With long suffering. You know, to put it in the analogy that Jesus will use in John chapter 10, he's the good shepherd. And he goes after the one straying sheep. Praise the Lord, right? That he came to you, a lost sheep, headed for doom and destruction. And that he came for me as well. And so then like a master surgeon, Jesus skillfully exposes the condition of her heart. Now, we don't know men's hearts. We know that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But because of the condition of our hearts, God has given us his word, his external objective word, his truth. And so when we talk to people about the gospel, we don't act like we know what they've been through in their hearts. But we have God's testimony, his law. His commandments, Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we bring that testimony, God's all-knowing testimony, to bear on sinners. And so remember what we said last time. Jesus treated this woman with dignity. He drew her into a conversation. He crossed the cultural And gender barriers. He moved the conversation from earthly things to spiritual things by using water. 
And then he confronts her with her sin. And so then we see here this woman's response, her reaction in verses 19 through 20. And I just want to say that I believe this woman is now under conviction. I think she is experiencing the work of God's spirit upon her heart, upon her life. And perhaps when she presents the issue that she's going to present, she wants to know, where do I go to find God? How do I get back to God? So let's see what she says in verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now that makes me laugh just about every time I read it because here is Jesus. He's telling her all of these details that he should really never know. Sir, I, I perceive you are a prophet. Right. Now. This will become interesting. Because. In verse 20, she talks about this age-old debate between Samaritans and the Jews. Remember last time we talked about that old feud between the two, how the Samaritans, because they intermarried while in captivity, when the Jewish people came back from their captivity and started to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans offered to help rebuild the temple. The Jews said, no, because you're intermarried, your pedigree is now defiled, and such defiling people may not do the work of the Lord and build this holy temple. So that began this age old, age old feud. And so there's also this debate then as to where one truly worships God. And she brings this up. And so as you read this and as you read literature about this, um, men sometimes say that she's using a diversion tactic. And I think that's partially true. I think also she's, she's had her toes stepped on and so she's backing away a little bit and she's changing the direction of the conversation. And so she brings up this old debate. And uh, I've, I've had this happen to me when talking to people. The conversation gets a little too serious for their comfort. And I understand that. And so they'll say, hey, what about this in the Bible? And they'll bring up some seeming contradiction, like where did Cain get his wife? And if they read the Bible, they could find out. Or if they read about it, they could find out pretty quickly. Or they'll bring up some theological debate. You know, how did, where did God come from? Or if God is good and all-powerful, how does He allow evil in the world? Why does He allow evil? You know, these things which we have answers to them. And so we try to answer their questions, but... We try as well to get back on track as Jesus does here. So what about this old debate she mentions beginning of verse 20? She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now there basically are two issues going on here. Number one, the... Samaritans had a truncated and incomplete Old Testament. In their Old Testament, they only had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And uh, 
What they said was that it was on Mount Gerizim, their mountain, that Moses first entered and offered sacrifices to God when the children of Israel entered the promised land. But the problem is in Deuteronomy 27, verse 4, it says that it was on Mount Ebal. So not only did they have a truncated, incomplete copy of the Old Testament, their Bible in that day, they had taken white out. Kids, if you don't know what that is, ask your parents. They had changed the word from Mount Ebal to Mount Gerizim. And so this woman was taught that it was at Mount Gerizim that was the most holy place. But she knew of this debate. And so the question for her is, where do we worship? Where do we worship God? What is the answer to this debate? And so I do believe that in part this is a diversion. But also I believe that Christ by His Spirit is drawing her to Himself. The Father by His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is drawing Him or drawing her to His Son. I think she's now under conviction. She perceives that He is a prophet. And she wants to make her sin right. I think she wants now to get back to God. It's like when you talk to people, as it used to be in the South, in the Bible Belt, who were not Christian, or maybe they made a profession of faith. They've been out of church for 20 years. You know, I've, I've had guys say, yeah, I need to get back into church. I need to get right with God. Maybe that is sort of the thing going on here. So in a sense, she is asking, so where do I go, Jesus? Where do I find God? Our fathers say over here. But you Jews say over there. Who is right? And so then at last, in verses 21 through 26, Jesus gives her full disclosure. In verse 21, he is basically saying, That his arrival will radically transform the worship of God. And we're going to spend, Lord willing, more time in verses 21 through 24. Next week, I'll give you what I think it means here in a moment. And ultimately, I think what it means is that the arrival of Jesus Christ will transform true worship. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman... Believe me, the hour is coming. He's speaking as a prophet. He says the hour is coming twice. Once there, once in verse 23. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. There's going to be this radical transformation. And probably the sense is that Jesus is saying, not a, you, you will... Not exclusively worship at this mountain. You will not exclusively worship in Jerusalem. What is he talking about? He says that they worship what they do not know. The Jews know what they worship. Verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Ultimately, this is a prediction of Jesus' fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies about the new covenant. 
Now Jesus will come. He will go to the cross. He will put an end to the ceremonial Old Testament sacrificial system. And in 70 AD, the temple will be destroyed. So it will be impossible to worship in that way. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament sacrifices. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 10 says, and that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the one sacrifice that perfects the forever the people of God. And so now, worship will not be confined to that temple. It will not be confined to Jerusalem. Under the new covenant, the gospel is to go out into the nations. When God spoke to Abraham, he told him, you'll be the father of many nations or the nations. And of course, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 makes it clear. So what God was saying to Abraham and promising through him is the gospel. God preached the gospel to Abraham, Galatians 3. And so Jesus comes after his resurrection and he says, make disciples of who? The nations. In Revelation, we see represented those from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And where Christians are, they worship the true and living God. Whether they're in Jerusalem, Judea, or Jackson, Georgia. Men and women and children in Christ worship the living and true God. And so that's what he's saying. In Zephaniah 2, verse 11, it prophesies of this. It says, There the Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. God is going to crush the idols of our heart. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the power of His Spirit, what's the result? That we won't have to flock to Jerusalem to worship God. We will worship God where we are, on our own shore, in our own homeland. Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He was speaking to them in a way that would ring in their minds worship. And so incense will be offered among the nations. And what is the result? In verse 22 of our passage, Jesus says, you worship what you don't know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, verse 23, now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. This is why Jesus is there. Because there are those being sought by the Father who will become true worshipers and thus worship in spirit and in truth. We're going to unpack that, Lord willing, but what does that mean? In spirit and in truth. It means that those who worship in spirit and in truth worship God with hearts renewed by the Holy Spirit in accordance with the truth, and thy word is truth. 
It means that we worship God from hearts renewed by the Holy Spirit in accordance with the Word of God. And so now her focus and her hope is on the Messiah. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. You see, they had Deuteronomy. They had Deuteronomy 18, which spoke of another prophet. Yes, there was Moses, their one prophet, but also there was one to come after him, the prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so John probably explains Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And she says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Picture this. Here's this woman. She really has had no idea who is speaking with her. The one speaking with her is God in the flesh. In a human body. Probably not the best looking Jewish man. Tired. Exhausted. Sweaty. Hot. Thirsty. And he looks at her. After she says, I know Messiah is coming. And he says, woman, I who speak to you am he. Can you imagine that? Speaking face to face to Jesus. If you're a child of God, you will. We shall see him face to face. We shall see him as he is. The risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. When we go to be with him in glory. But here she is in his earthly ministry. And he declares his Messiahship. Just as a footnote, I don't think I'm resurrecting an old heresy. We're told not to do that in preaching. But uh, that's in the old Scottish directory for worship. Don't resurrect an old heresy. But uh, in the early 20th century, the Germans and others who were liberal Christians, which means they were unbelievers... They said that Jesus really was um, unconscionable, not unconscionable, but he was unconscious of his Messiahship. And so there's, there's this talk about the messianic consciousness of Jesus. Well, what does he say right here? I am he. And so he reveals to her that he is Messiah. And so then... As Christians, we are those who are saved by God. Jesus came to save us from our sins. We are saved by God, from God, from His wrath, from His curse, from His judgment. The Lord Jesus is our substitutionary atonement. He took our place on His cross at Calvary. God poured out His wrath upon Him. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We get Jesus' perfection, His sinless record. And what does He get? He gets our bad record, our guilt placed on Him so that God can punish that. That's the essence of the gospel. And that's how we are saved. But why? So that we may be satisfied. So that we might be happy. That we might be joyful. These are the glorious, wonderful byproducts Of our salvation. But that's not the primary reason. 
Um, the sinner must be made right before God, before he or she can worship God. In Proverbs 15, 8, it says the sacrifices of the wicked or the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. And so before we can approach God's holiness, before we can approach a holy God, we must be made right and acceptable in his sight. Otherwise, our worship is an abomination. That's why Jesus came to transform us so that we might rightly and truly worship him. And so the requirement is faith and repentance towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. Do you remember in the Old Testament, in Exodus, there were God's people enslaved. They were in bondage by the Egyptians. In Exodus 3, there's God who had come down manifesting His presence in the burning bush. Moses takes off his sandals for the place where he's standing is on holy ground. He has this conversation. And God says, I've come down to deliver them, that is to save them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them to the land flowing in milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites. You see, God says there, I have remembered my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why I'm here, Moses, because of the gospel promise to save my people. That's why I'm here. Then he says this in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12. You shall serve God on this mountain. After I have freed you from your bondage, you shall travel and you shall worship at this mountain. What does that mean? That God delivered them in order that they may worship Him. That's why God saves you and me. Look at John 4, 23. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. What is the Father doing in the world? He is seeking through His Son, by His Holy Spirit, those who will worship Him truly in spirit and in truth. And so, beloved, that's why we are saved. And so as we follow Jesus' example here, as we follow His command to make disciples from every nation, think about this. When you share the gospel with someone, you are sharing the gospel with a potential true worshiper of God. And maybe you're sitting there wondering now, Kevin, how do we worship God truly? Because I want to know. And we'll save that for next time, Lord willing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Your Son and Your Spirit. Thank You that You are the Lord, our Shepherd. That we shall not want. That the Good Shepherd makes us to lie down in green pastures. That He goes after His sheep. That He has laid down His life for His sheep. Ultimately, 
that you, the triune God, may receive our today imperfect worship, nevertheless worship in spirit and in truth. May our hearts rejoice at this and may we be salt and light as we have the joy of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.